Welcome to the War Room. Ryan here, as always. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you like this show, could you share it with a friend, family, coworker, whoever that you might think enjoys this podcast today? We'd really appreciate it. Adam, welcome yep. to the War Room. Thank you, Ryan. Good to be with you. Okay. You have a new book out, or recently new, October still new, uh, American Midnight, The Great War, A Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Okay, so let's unpack the title there just a bit, and we'll get into the subject matter. Well, here's what the book is about. It's about the United States in the years 1917 to 1921, a period when I think our country really ran off the rails in a way that we tend to forget about today. When we learn American history in that period in high school, for instance, we learn about the First World War, the doughboys going to Europe in those mm -hmm. forest ranger hats. They fought bravely. They won the war, ticker tape parades when they come home. Then you turn the page, and the next chapter is the 1920s. Prohibition, speakeasies, flappers, the Charleston, Babe Ruth, and all of that. But in between, there was a lot of nasty stuff that happened. Uh, political prisoners on a huge scale. Uh, hundreds of people sent to jail simply for things that they wrote or said. A government-sponsored vigilante group with a quarter of a million members. Press censorship on an enormous scale. Some 75 newspapers and magazines in this country forced out of business by the federal government. These are things Americans have largely forgotten about, and that's what I wanted to write about in this book. Okay, so you said 17 to 21. Um, and so this is going to be the tail end, I guess, of World War One, right there, going into the quote Roaring Twenties, which I don't know the official start date for that, but kind of that that in between period. So maybe unpack where you're picking up and in the relevance of World War One um, in the U.S. and and kind of how that sentiment is feeling at this time. I think there were two things that set off this period of hysteria, which is really what I would call it. One was when the United States officially entered the First World War in April of 1917. It set off a frenzy of hyper-patriotism, which was rather unusual when you consider that America itself had not been attacked in that war. Uh, but I think entering war, entering, in this case, the largest war the world had ever seen, uh, there's always something hysteria producing about that. Then later that same year in November uh, came the final phase of the Russian Revolution. The Bolsheviks took power and many people in power in the United States were afraid, not realistically, I think, but they, they genuinely feared it, that the Russian Revolution might spread to the United States. And that provided a further excuse for crackdown on dissent of all kinds. One of the things that, that I've, I've wondered about, I don't know if you explored this in your research, is the propensity for, I don't know if you'll say perpetual war, but the amount of war that we see, um, at least in the U.S., and the potential for dehumanization, because you're constantly, as part of war, um, you have that patriotism that you mentioned. Um, there's propaganda, whether you think the propaganda is right or wrong, but there's propaganda that goes along that process. Um, and so some of the things that, that I've, I've been curious about when you think about civil rights or other things that have gone on in various periods is 
how much does a, a wartime propaganda to dehumanize the enemy to stir up paper, patriotism have lingering effects? Well, I think it the very fact of going to war provides the excuse to dehumanize the enemy because it's hard to go into battle against people that you think of as human beings. That's why when you see World War I posters that were put out by the U.S. government encouraging recruitment in the army, they portray the Germans as like a giant gorilla. There's a famous poster urging people to enlist that shows a giant gorilla carrying a screaming woman in his arms, wearing one of those German helmets with a little spike on top. Uh, they demonized Germans very suddenly. Uh, states all over the country passed laws against speaking German in public or on the telephone. There were literally dozens of bonfires of German books from high school and college libraries, public libraries, Schools and universities immediately stopped the teaching of German. Uh, all of this was very strange because there were seven or eight million Americans of German descent. But it was uh, something that put a kind of terror in the air. I heard about this when I was growing up from my father, who was in his 20s at this time. He was the son of a, a Jewish immigrant from Germany, uh, and the family spoke German around the dining room table at home. But he was terrified of doing so on the street because you could get beaten up for that. So there was this anti-German hysteria. And, you know, people had the feeling that that person speaking a foreign language on the street corner might be a German spy. Then comes the Russian Revolution, and that person speaking a foreign language on the street corner might be a Russian spy. And that sort of increased the hysteria. Yeah, and, and to think back, and I'm, um, I know reading some accounts of at least World War II stuff, um, I was watching a video that they did of my grandfather, and he's talking about coming across some people from Australia, and he'd never heard an Australian accent before. Obviously, they speak English, but but for him, it's not the same as it is for us today, where you can get on YouTube and literally find just about any nation someone speaking and kind of somewhat hear. I'm guessing during this era. You know, it might sound weird for us, but maybe German and Russian wouldn't really sound that different if you've never heard the two for any length of time. So try, trying to distinguish them could be a problem. Yeah, I think also there's always been a lot of tension in this country between nativists, you know, people born here, maybe coming from a generation or two of people who are born here, very suspicious of outsiders, newcomers, immigrants. There was a lot of anti-immigrant hysteria during this period, uh, which actually culminated in the Immigration Act of 1924, which essentially largely slammed the door on new immigration in this country until the 1960s. And that's what that's the act that kept Holocaust refugees out of the United States. So we have a period of hyper patriotism or increased patriotism. Maybe let's go back just a few years before the U.S. before World War One started. Maybe kind of unpack where we were and kind of how we got to that trajectory. Because you said that the patriotism was kind of stirred up or hyper patriotism. However, you want to rephrase that. Phrase that. What would have been the sentiment prior to World War World War One for the average U.S. citizen? Good question. I think that there's the myth that this was a peaceful country that was against its will drawn into the First World War when those nasty German submarines started sinking American freighters. 
but in fact, this was not a very peaceful country. There were several big conflicts that were riling it. One, as I mentioned, was between nativists and immigrants, conflict that sometimes broke out into open warfare on the streets, uh, tremendous feeling uh, against new immigrants. And the new immigrants at that point were mainly from Southern and Eastern Europe. In other words, Italians, Poles, and Jews. The people leading the anti-immigrant crusade were mainly people you know, of uh, Anglo-Saxon descent. So there was a lot of tension about that issue. Uh, then there was a lot of tension between business and labor. Uh, routinely, dozens of people were killed in labor strife each year. 1913, 14 alone, for instance, more than 70 people, some of them women and children, were killed when uh, private detectives and federal militia put down a mine workers strike in Colorado. And then finally, there was a lot of tension between black and white Americans because Black Americans had started leaving the South in large numbers in the Great Migration in around 1910, fleeing an area where there was often up to one lynching a week, 60 or 70 lynchings a year. They were looking for safety. They were looking for places where they could earn more money than picking cotton as sharecroppers. They began flooding into northern and midwestern cities where they often found people didn't want them there. And there was a lot of tension on that score. So when you have all of these tensions going on in the United States, entering a war is like putting gasoline on three sets of flames. Yeah. So is those issues aren't necessarily going to galvanize everyone. You're still going to, you're going to have some kind of uh, galvanizing event, but then you still would have these potential subgroups to where people would would find um, that you might align with the enemy, or however you want to phrase that, the Germans in this case, and so you 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 kind of have tightened up the the the, the nationalists, I think is what you call them, but the, for the immigrants and and for the blacks and for the the lower labor workers, you haven't really solved that issue. So you've kind of hardened one group and kept the other group alienated. That's right, and the war gave an excuse for these. Uh, crackdowns to get more severe. For example, uh, if workers went on strike, uh, they could be accused of impeding the war economy and mm. uh, slowing down the supply of supplies, the supply of, of munitions to our troops overseas. So strikes were dealt with much more harshly from the by the government. Uh, there was also, I should say, a certain amount of resistance to the war. I think there's no question that the majority of the American population favored the U.S. entering the war uh, and joining the Allies to fight against the, the Germans. But there was a significant minority of people who felt the U.S. had no business getting embroiled in a European quarrel, uh, mostly from the left side of the political spectrum, but not entirely. There was a lot of uh, passive draft, draft res resistance, people who simply didn't show up when they were drafted, never dra registered for the draft in the first place, proportionally much higher in the American South. Why? I think because these were rural areas and, you know, people wanted to keep the family farm going, uh, things like that. So 
there was a lot of resistance to the war. And I think that's one of the things that led the government to do this extraordinary crackdown on dissent involving censorship and political imprisonment. And so Woodrow Wilson is president or how much blame do we put on him? Is it Congress? Is it all the above? Well, Wilson was a complicated guy. Um, you know, in many ways, he was a progressive president on issues like the graduated income tax, child labor, regulation of business, and so on. He accomplished some things in his first term. And you also have to give him credit for uh, being idealistic enough to believe, unrealistically, I think, that his dream of the League of Nations would solve the problem of war for all time to come. He imagined this association of nations with the United States as its key member, which would, where countries could talk out their differences instead of going to war in the future. Impractical, I think, but something idealistic about it. At the same time, once he made the decision to bring the country into war, to ask Congress to vote for war, which they did, uh, he wanted the power to pursue that aim with the ability to crush all dissent. For example, um, you know, in, in 2016, more recently, uh, Donald Trump's supporters yelled, lock her up, lock her up, lock her up about Hillary Clinton. Well, Woodrow Wilson in 1918 actually did lock up a former appointment, opponent of his, Eugene Debs, the socialist candidate for president, who in 1912 won 6% of the popular vote, um, was a man deeply committed to nonviolence and to the electoral process, but he spoke out against the war. He was immediately put on trial. The judge in the case just happened to be the former law partner of Wilson's Secretary of War. Debs was sentenced to 10 years in prison. And he was one of many, many political prisoners. The best estimates are that Roughly a thousand Americans went to jail for a year or more and a much larger number for shorter periods of time solely for things that they wrote or said during this period. I don't mean nobody was violent during this period because sure. there was violence by labor unions and other folks. But these are people who were locked up just for things that they wrote or said in almost all cases opposing the war. Uh Furthermore, Wilson pressed hard to get a censorship provision in the Espionage Act, which was the principal legislation that enabled all this repression during this period. Congress deleted the censorship provision, but in fact, the Espionage Act allowed for censorship by different means, which was that it gave to the postmaster general the power to declare a newspaper or magazine unmailable. It could not travel through the U.S. mail. Now, that didn't affect daily newspapers, which were sold on street corners, but for weeklies, monthlies, journals of opinion, uh, almost the entire foreign language press, almost the entire socialist press, which had a circulation of about two million people at the beginning of the war, uh, that was death. And the postmaster general, a former congressman from Texas named Albert Burleson, loved being chief censor, and he used his powers to essentially shut down by denying mailing privileges to them, some 75 newspapers and magazines. 
Okay. And so let me go back to that number. You, you said a thousand Americans roughly. And so when you think about people being locked up, it, at least from, again, from a non-historian standpoint, you kind of think of the World War II uh, camps that were done. How would this, do you kind of have rough numbers to compare those camps or is this strictly only American citizens? And that's maybe a little, a little bit different. What, do you have any numbers on that? Well, World War II, uh, most of the people who were locked up were the Japanese Americans, of course, mm-hmm. who were interned. Right. And there were tens of thousands of them, possibly as many as 100,000. I'm not sure of the numbers sure. there, but it was way up there. Uh, World War I, it was different. It was not people who were ethnically singled out, but rather they were singled out because they had spoken or written something opposing the war that mm. the United States was fighting. Uh, I mean, the Japanese internment during World War II is a national disgrace. There's no question about it. But I think today it is recognized as such. And in fact, the government paid reparations to the survivors of the internment and their and their descendants. But we've never sort of reckoned equally with the tremendous imprisonment of the World War I era, where people were imprisoned solely for their opinions yeah okay and so if we go back to the um the kind of three three categories earlier you had the the people from poland um i think you said uh italy um and one uh and jew and jewish people that were coming over um there's labor strife and then there's the black white strife and so if i'm hearing you correctly you could have bob on the street who is critical of all three of those groups However, he doesn't agree with the war, and so then he finds himself in jail for that. That's true. It could have been possible. There were all sorts of people who were imprisoned for making statements or speeches uh, against the war. And what also we tend to have forgotten is that those people, a great many of them, remained in prison after the war was over. For example, Eugene Debs, whom I mentioned earlier, the perennial socialist candidate for president, uh, was sent to jail in 1918 mid-1918, and he was still in jail November 1920, more than two years after the war ended, when he received more than 900,000 votes for president (laughs) while he was a prisoner in the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. And so where is the Supreme Court in this? The Supreme Court in this era was not good. Uh, I think it was a time when we don't have the respect for the First Amendment that I think most Americans have today. There are a lot of problems with this country, but one of the ways in which we've improved, I think, is that there is a greater sense of the importance of the Bill of Rights today than there was 100 years ago. Here's what the Supreme Court did. The the key piece of legislation, as I mentioned, was the Espionage Act, which gave the government the power to do these political imprisonments and the press censorship and so on. Many people who cared about civil liberties uh, hoped that the Supreme Court would find it unconstitutional. They placed their hopes in a case known as the Schenck case, which came before the court finally uh, in early 1919, after the war was over, uh, involving a couple of young people from Philadelphia who had been convicted of sending leaflets through the mail opposing the draft to young men who were about to be drafted. The civil libertarians placed their hopes in the court, and especially in Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., whom they thought would see 
the folly of the Espionage Act. To their horror, the court unanimously upheld the Espionage Act, and Holmes wrote the decision. Then something interesting happened. Over the summer, a lot of people worked on Holmes. He began to change his mind. And I think it takes a large person to change their mind about something important. A second case came before the, the, the court that fall, the Abrams case, also involving distribution of leaflets. In this case, leaflets tossed out the window of a clothing factory in New York City, where one of the leaflet writers worked. And this time, Holmes declared uh, to the, his fellow Supreme Court justices that he changed his mind and he planned to dissent if they upheld the Espionage again, Act again. They were horrified. And most unusually, three of the justices came to see him in his home. And we know what they said to him because Holmes's law clerk was listening in from the next room through a half-open door. And they said, we have to stick together. These are difficult times. You were a soldier in the Civil War. It's time to be a soldier for your country again. And indeed, on the wall next to them as they spoke was Holmes' sword as from his time as a Union officer. He said, no, I'm going to descend. I'm going to descend. And in fact, his colleague, uh, Louis Brandeis, descended with him. Supreme Court dissents don't make law, of course, but many people mark that dissent as the beginning of a time when we began to take the Bill of Rights more seriously. That is that is interesting. As a, as a non-legal scholar, I have heard scholars talk about reading dissents and how it can be important um, down the road. You know, future justices might go back and read that as, I don't know if precedent's the right word, but kind of a basis for overturning or arguing something from a different perspective. And so that's kind of what's happening here is he didn't get the vote, but he did begin to lay the foundation for an argument of why things should trend in a different direction. Yeah, I think so. His, his dissent is often quoted. I can't quote it exactly myself, but where he talks about the importance of a free marketplace of ideas. Mm. Yeah. Okay. And so if you're an average citizen, pick a year in between 17 and 21. Um, are you aware that people are getting arrested and thrown to jail or because there's this censorship of the media, is it kind of being, you have to hear about it. You had to know someone that, that it happened to. I think for the most part, you had to know somebody or you had to be a reader of one of the rare dissenting newspapers that hadn't been shut down. I don't think most people fully really had a sense of what was going on. And of course, most, most people, you know, as they do at any time, had their own pressing concerns. You know, maybe they had a son or a brother or a husband who was overseas in the military and they wanted him to come home safely. Uh, maybe they had economic worries because it was a very unstable time economically uh, the year after the war, especially 1919 because you had 4 million men being released from the armed forces and they came home to an America where there weren't jobs for them because the factories that had been making ships and tanks and guns and artillery pieces for the war had shut down. So there was a lot of unemployment. There was a lot of battling between black and white veterans about who was going to get those jobs. Uh, an extremely unstable and stormy time, which of course, 
gave even more excuse for the forces of repression to come into play. And did the government make amends, I say amends, um, try to undo some of the propaganda? Because we talked earlier about uh, the immigrants that are coming over and some, some of the pressure on them, and you can see it being heightened during wartime. But when the war is over, was there a sense from the top at least, it's kumbaya, let's let's hold hands, let's kind of get together, or they kind of just fade off into the oblivion and people were left to kind of sort it out for themselves somewhere in between? I think the big difference came when the Wilson administration left office. There was certainly no kumbaya feeling as long as his administration was in power. The press censorship and political imprisonment continued right through 1919, 1920. Uh, Postmaster General Burleson was denying mailing privileges to descending newspapers right up until the end. Um, and then, uh, but a couple of things happened that began to make a change. One was this, Wilson's uh, attorney general uh, in his the latter part of his presidency was a man named A. Mitchell Palmer, very ambitious politician who had his eye on the 1920 Democratic nomination for president. And he figured he was gonna be the law and order candidate as the nation's top law enforcement officer. And also he ran on a, on a platform of promising to deport huge numbers of immigrants. Uh, he made the mistake of believing his own propaganda and he predicted repeatedly that on May 1st, 1920, May Day, the international workers holiday, there would be throughout the United States, a communist uprising and we had to be prepared for it. So New York City, for instance, called in all three shifts of its police force, put one shift on the street, had the other two waiting in station houses. J.P. Morgan hired extra guards. The National Guard was put on alert all over the country. They posted extra security people at bus stations, railway stations, uh, ferry terminals. May 1st came and nothing happened, absolutely nothing. That began to take some of the wind out of this period of hysteria. Then the second thing that happened was that uh, in March 1921, Wilson's term ended, and he was replaced by Warren Harding, who is not thought of as one of our great presidents, but who had campaigned on the slogan, Return to Normalcy. And Harding, one good thing you have to say about him is he'd been a newspaper publisher before he went into pol politics. Uh, he did not think there should be any press censorship. He shut down that program entirely. Uh, he began letting political prisoners out of jail, not all of them, not right away. But by the end of 1921, he decided to let the most famous political prisoner, Eugene Debs, out of prison. Not only did that, but invited Debs to stop in and see him in Washington on his way home. And when Debs left Harding's office after that visit, uh, he told reporters, I've run for the White House five times, but this is the first time I've actually gotten here. <laughs> so that sort of marked uh, an easing of this repression. But it took time. And there were still political prisoners in jail for another couple of years. It was Calvin Coolidge, actually, in 1924, who released the very last of them. And so where are the the large institutional newspapers during this era? So you have kind of the uh, political establishment, if you will, who's kind of doing some things, but and you have this 
male um, print publications who are, had to be careful. But you said that the if you're you know if you're large you know sold on the street, you could print whatever theoretically. Were they taking up the mantle, or were they cowards to use you know use the term? By and large, the major daily newspapers of this period were pretty terrible. Uh, I wish I could say otherwise, because I started off in journalism. I still have one foot in the field, even though I mainly write history books. Uh, But they usually repeated unquestioningly whatever the government told them. Uh, Investigative journalism, even though it had enjoyed quite a heyday in the first decade of the century, the famous muckrakers then, uh, was in abeyance. There was very little of it. The, there was very little investigative work done about such things as why are these people in prison? Why are these repressive measures being used against labor unions and so on? What investigative work was done was mainly by a few surviving small magazines. Uh, National Council of Churches did some good stuff. The daily papers were pretty much cheerleaders for the government. Some Some might argue... Things don't change. Some might argue that. Some might argue that. <laughs> Sometimes they still are cheerleaders. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Yeah, it depends on depends on the agenda and which channel you have turned on. Uh, it feels like that's still going on today. That's true. Although, actually, I feel, you know, critical as I am of this country in so many ways that not only has our appreciation for the uh, Bill of Rights increased over the last century. But I think the willingness of at least some of the major news media to be dissenting and investigative when they need to be has increased. Yeah, and I also think that the the advent of new media, the ability to publish more books, to blogs, you know, there's obviously people who are concerned with some of the stuff that gets written, but, you know, in 1950, there's only so many books that can be published, so much that can be written. Now we've kind of expanded the horizons, and you can ask new questions that weren't getting asked before. Someone can look at it from, from a different perspective, and so you can you can really open up conversations in ways um, that you didn't that you weren't able before. And so there's pros and cons with that, but but generally speaking, it, it seems that right now, uh, as we sit here in 2023, where we're at is is a unique spot in history because we're not sure exactly how to balance that out. Because there's a That's gazillion true. books published every year, but also, you know, like we did an episode a while back, um, someone arguing that the Zapruder film was doctored. Okay, I don't know anything about film. Mm-hmm. He comes on and argues it. Okay, whatever. And then we had someone come on and say, no, it couldn't have been doctored because of this. And it's like, hmm, okay, well that that makes that makes sense because of that. But you could have discussions. And so, you know, in 1955, 1970, if you picked up a book and that was the book on the topic, you're likely not going to have 10, 15, 20 different responses that could kind of carve through on that issue. And so it allows, at least if the readers are curious, it allows them the ability to um, take the information, think about it, process it, and push back on the media or the authors or whoever it is. So I know people get frustrated with that, but to me, it's it's really a unique time in history that we should be quite thankful for. I think so. I mean, this this profusion of new media, you know, it has its problems. It has, you know, the the I'm particularly worried about the way you know, when you go on Facebook or Instagram or something, it knows your preferences and it feeds you stuff that magnifies whatever your prejudices or beliefs are. I'd love to see some system where, you know, it automatically fed you material that 
challenges your beliefs uh, or prejudices or whatever. But I don't have control over that. However, <laughs> I do think <laughs> we're in a better situation media-wise for all its problems than we were 100 years ago. Yeah, and we get back to the story. I, I just, um, I do get frustrated with the narrative that people will say, "Well, back in this era, you just had the news." And it's like, no, that 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 wasn't true of that era. That the, there was humans in that era too, and they had their own flaws and and biases and stuff. So, the, walk me through because we are still a little bit away from the slave narratives that FDR had recorded, um, and so I guess that that's probably the 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 first time really that maybe Americans would start to have access to some of these stories at scale. What was the general vibe on the ground between black and white Americans during this era? You mentioned they're coming home from war. So some had fought for freedom. They felt like they wanted, they wanted rights rightfully. So some people said, well, you know, I don't care. So what was, what was kind of the argument made going into the war and then coming out of the war? How did that change? Well, here's what was happening. As I mentioned earlier, you know, the great migration of blacks to the north had begun around 1910 and brought with it a lot of tensions because these folks were migrating into cities where often white people didn't want them there because they were willing to work for lower wages. Sometimes their presence lowered the real estate values in the neighborhood or a realtor would tell them these blacks are moving in. Your house is going to be worth less. Better sell it to me right now. Uh, so there were a lot of tensions there. Then the war came, and many white Americans, above all in the South, were horrified at the thought that Black people were being drafted into the Army, would learn how to fight, how to shoot, you know, how to, how to use a rifle and so on. And there were one Southern senator who advocated that any Black war veterans should not be allowed to return to the South. Uh, on the other hand, Blacks felt that by going to war, and of course they had no choice because the draft applied to them, by going to war, they were going to show that they could do their part for their country, fight heroically, and the country would treat them better when they returned. And actually, W.E.B. Du Bois, who was the most radical Black leader at the time, advocated that they join the army, fight hard, and expect more when they return. Uh, even though he himself had some doubts about the the war itself. When they came back, though, they found to their horror that wearing a uniform, being a veteran, did not provide them a protection. There were some 70 lynchings in 1919, 11 of them of Black veterans, and three of those veterans were actually lynched while in uniform. That year, 1919, was extremely stormy because, as I mentioned, there was surplus of men, a shortage of jobs, uh, tremendous battling between blacks and whites about who would get those jobs. Uh, there were some uh, uh, two dozen outbreaks of racial violence around the, the country. You'll find them in the history books recorded as race riots. They really should be called white riots because in almost every case it was a white mob that attacked black people. The total death toll from uh, this fighting was in the high hundreds. We don't know what the exact toll was because the most deaths took place at a spot called Elaine, Arkansas, where both federal militia and local vigilantes 
attacked blacks who had been trying to form a sharecropper's union. Hundreds of them were killed, but their bodies were simply tossed into the Mississippi River and floated downstream. And we don't know what the total was. So this was a, a really terrifying period of, of, of racial violence, which in terms of sheer numbers of deaths surpassed uh, you know, similar upheavals that happened later on in the century. And, and so these would be mainly grandchildren of Civil War slaves, I'm guessing roughly, or children? Yeah, grandchildren. 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 Yeah, and um, so, so it's something that for them, they're hearing stories, obviously, directly from their grandparents and their parents, what they saw and experienced. And so then they come back, they go fight the war and they come back and then they have to go through this is, is from the, from a different perspective. But for their era, this is what they had to deal with. And we shouldn't forget that even though the North won the Civil War in 1865, over the next half century, the South basically won the war by imposing the black codes, the Jim Crow laws, stripping away the right to vote and all sorts of other rights that blacks had gained under Reconstruction. Mm-hmm. And so what was, on this issue in particular, um, was there much support from the government, from the newspapers at large? So we talked about the, the people being in prison for talking about the war, but on the issue of uh, lynchings um, and, and, and lynching veterans, even worse, in this case, they just came back from the war. Was there any people with power saying, no, we, we, we've got to move past this. We've got to work on this. Woodrow Wilson spoke out once against mm. lynching. And remember, we're talking about a period when there were 50 to 70 lynchings a year. He spoke mm. out once, did nothing. There was no chance of getting any lynching legislation through because this was a time when, you know, the seniority system prevailed in Congress. Southern Democrats, there was the one party South. Those politicians tended to get elected and stay in office for life. So they controlled, Southerners controlled all the key congressional committees. So there wasn't a chance of getting anti-lynching legislation through. And indeed, that didn't happen until, you know, almost a century later. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was a nasty time. The lynchings continued, uh, racial violence continued, uh, no let up in terms of blacks being allowed to, to vote in the South. Uh, they continued to move North and there, you know, they were able to win some rights, including the right to vote. Mm. What was the country... I mean, think I would say this. Was there a concern, or at least from your perspective, looking back, of, of a fracture at this point in the country? Or was it generally agreed that that kind of period of civil war unrest had move on and we got to figure out how to live together, but it's still going to be a, this, this bloody mess? I don't think there was a sense that the country was going to fracture into two parts in a way that you sometimes hear people talking about today although it's a little hard to imagine what those two parts would be today. You have maybe the coasts somehow joining (laughs) with each other with selected cities in the interior being part of that too, but rural areas, even in the coastal states, you know, pretty conservative. So, but there wasn't anything quite like that. And there was actually leading up to the first world war period, very much a feeling that, uh, 
North and South had reconciled after the Civil War. The greatest expression of this was in 1913 on the 50th anniversary of the Battle of Gettysburg. Uh, both Northern veterans and Southern veterans came there. They shook hands across a stone wall that marked the battle line. Uh, Wilson came and spoke to them. So the official myth anyway was that we've put our differences behind us. Uh, that didn't mean, uh, you know, that there was no tension between blacks and whites. There was a lot of that, which we've been talking about that. But I don't think there was a sense that the country was going to split in two. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting to watch um, when you observe a period of history, and there's high tension, and then moving on from it. I don't know what the perfect way to resolve this is, but it feels that sometimes a society might put a bandage on it um, and kind of move forward. But the under underneath the wound is still bleeding. It's still oozing. Um, and so the society pretends to move forward, but they haven't actually done the work it takes to really stop, reflect, truly ask for forgiveness or make reparations or whatever that, whatever needs to happen, happen, criminal prosecutions. Uh, and so you kind of move forward into history and then you get 10, 20, 30 years down the road and you go, Oh my gosh, we never really, dealt with that back then and so it's been kind of festering nonstop. and so it, it seems like that's part of what's at play here as well i think so and then of course the more a country looks at its history the more you realize all the different parts of it we didn't come to terms with uh you know the displacement of native americans from their long land the internment of the japanese americans during world war ii and, and so on mm -hmm. um you know we still have work to do on all those you know, areas of reconciliation that need to be to be done. Uh, and uh, there's work ahead on all of them. Okay. You mentioned earlier this year is kind of, I mean, glanced over, but what would be another big, maybe the other big misconception if you were to walk up to someone on the street and they were to ask them three or five questions, what would they miss about this area that you said, you know what, you really should think about this? Uh, I think the thing I would say, and something I give a lot of attention to in uh, American Midnight, is the importance of vigilante politics in this country. Again, it's something still with us. We saw it on January 6th of 20, 2021, you know, when the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and so on were among those folks who invaded the Capitol. And we saw it in this period of stormy time that uh, started in 1917. The largest of those groups at that time was something called the American Protective League, which was officially chartered by the Justice Department. If you were a member of the American Protective League, and by the end of 1917, some 250,000 American men were, you got to wear a oval silver or gold badge that looked like that worn by a firefighter or police officer that said American Protective League. It had your rank, you know, operative, lieutenant, captain. Uh, and it said uh, chartered, uh, it said uh, auxiliary to the U.S. Department of Justice. This organization was made up uh, entirely of men and mostly of men who were a little beyond draft age. So, 
they couldn't join the military, they didn't have to join the military, but they wanted to feel they were fighting for their country at home. And this they did by staging huge raids in cities around the country, rounding up young men who appeared to be of draft age and demanding to see their papers. And if somebody couldn't produce a draft card or he left his draft card at home, or maybe in a few cases hadn't registered for the draft in the first place, he was roughed up, locked up in a warehouse, police station, vacant lot or something, sometimes held for several days until they could find if their families could come with the right paperwork. And the small, relatively small number, usually less than 1% of those seized who really were in violation of the draft were shipped off to the army. But this gave a lot of slightly older Americans in their late 30s, 40s, 50s, the feeling that they were fighting for their country. But it meant a sort of reign of terror in American cities. Uh, and I think the vigilante tradition goes quite far back in this country. It goes to the frontier. It goes to the slave patrols of the Old South who were chasing down runaway slaves. And that was how it flourished during this particular period. After the war was over, they no longer had the excuse of going after draft dodgers. But then some of these uh, vigilante groups went into battle quite violently in association with police and private detectives against striking workers. And there were a lot of them because during the year 1919, one out of every five American workers went on strike. What was the most surprising, shocking discovery that you come across when you're researching this book? Um, I can't say that it shocked me exactly, but I think the character I most enjoyed getting to know in American Midnight, whose path through life was the most surprising, was a man named Leo Wendell. And if you had been a member of a labor union or a left-wing organization in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, 1917, 1918, 1919, you would have known Wendell because he was there. He joined the Socialist Party. He was on the strike committee for the Steelworkers Union. He was active in the city's radical library. Uh, he was giving orations uh, against the war and in favor of revolution. He was leading marches and demonstrations. And you would not have known that the entire time he was Agent 836 of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation, predecessor <laughs> of the FBI, and filing several reports a week to them, which, thanks to the National Archives, we can read today. I'm fascinated by this guy. Uh, I wish I knew more about his motivations. Those are very hard to tell from the reports that he filed. Uh, but uh, I, I love working with undercover material, and I've done it in, in several previous books as well. 50 or 100 years later, you can get to see what the undercover people wrote. Again, some things never change. The That's FBI right. having informants writing reports, and people think that they're actually um, actors or you know uh, participants. Okay, um, I'll, I'll let you into this however you want to. Either A... What's the one unanswered question, or B, that you left for the book, or B, if you if you could go back in time and ask a certain character in the book, um, 
maybe the one you just mentioned, who would you like to talk to and what would you ask them? <laughs> I think I would like to talk to Leo Wendell because the interesting thing is, you know, I've looked at literally hundreds of pages of the reports he filed to the Justice Department, you know, spying on his left-wing comrades, uh, uh, in, including people he'd sheltered in his own home. You know, you lost your job, come and stay on the floor of my room. No, no problem. There's one case of a guy like that. I'd like to ask him what motivated him, because in all of these reports, there are no statements of patriotism of any kind. Uh, I think he mostly just enjoyed playing a role. And if you actually look at the biographies of spies through history who have left us a little more records of their feeling, uh, often that is something that they seem to really enjoy doing. So he's the person I would most like to uh, have a conversation with. Unfortunately, he died in 1945, uh, not leaving anything in the way of personal papers. Uh, I have been in touch with his granddaughter, who's equally fascinated with him, but neither of us had a chance to talk to him. Okay. Um, we are going to link to the book in the show notes, um, American Midnight, The Great War, a Violent Peace, and Democracy's Forgotten Crisis. Uh, have a link to your uh, UC Berkeley page. Is there anywhere else you want us to send people to? I don't think so. Uh, from my Berkeley page, they can tell something about me. And from the book, they can tell something about uh, a stormy period in our country's past. Okay. I have to ask, do you have another project you're working on that we can look forward to? Uh, you know, Ryan, I always have trouble finding a subject for books. Uh, I, I don't get writing block when I'm working on a book, but I get subject matter block. <laughs> and the reason is that... Um, to write a book like this, you have to work six or eight hours a day for three or four years, or at least that's what it usually takes me. And to do that, you have to be really obsessed and fascinated by something. And my problem is that 95% of the subjects that obsess and fascinate me do so because somebody's written a very good book about it. <laughs> so how to find my way around that problem, I haven't yet solved. And I often get stuck for a year or two between books. Uh, okay. Well, so. we look forward to whatever it is that you find uh, based upon your timetable. That's a year to find something, three to four years to write about it. So in five years, we look forward to to having you back on the show. I hope so. <laughs> so I will see you then. Hey, you made it to the end of this episode. Thank you so much. Now, I'm going to ask a favor. If you enjoyed it, would you drop a five-star somewhere? And if you really enjoyed it, would you consider becoming a subscribing member over at warroommedia.com? Helps keep the show going and ad-free. Thank you so much.